Well, in the time that I had been, have been in ministry, there's been a, a series of highs and a series of lows, which I think is the reality of life for all of us, right? After all, we have been warned that a spiritual battle rages. One of the verses that most often comes to mind as I consider this spiritual battle is Ephesians 6, verse 12, which says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And there are times as we consider that, that it might seem just a bit overwhelming. And the one thing I take comfort in Uh, besides God's Word, besides loved ones and the church, it's actually quite an odd thing, actually. It's the ordination certificate that is hanging on my wall. Now, for those of you who have never sat in on an ordination council, I'll tell you that it consists of several local clergy uh, questioning the ordinant or the ordination candidate, sometimes for hours on end asking questions like, what do you believe about this or that? What do you do to demonstrate that belief? And how will you handle this or that situation? It can be a rather intense experience. And at the end, if these five or six pastors believe you've been called to ministry, they gather around and lay hands on you and pray and commit to continued prayer And then they commend you to the gospel ministry. And it is in times of discouragement and in times of doubt that I look at that certificate hanging on my wall and I'm reminded that others have affirmed my calling. Now, every believer in Christ has a similar affirmation that they can look to when they are discouraged. Doesn't matter how you feel, whether you're up or down, whether you're a saint or a sinner, God affirms His call over you, for it says He chose you, believer, in Him before the foundation of the world. Sometimes when we're discouraged, as Israel is discouraged in our text this morning, we need to be reminded of God choosing us, not because we're choice but because he is glorious, which leads us to the main idea of our text today, that God sovereignly elects to save some and not others for the praise of his glory. God sovereignly elects to save some and not others for the praise of his glory. Now, why in the world would a guest preacher handle such a controversial topic, you might ask? Well, for those of you who know me, you know that Not only am I a member of this church, but I'm also a military chaplain. You may also know that I preach on base once a month on the drill weekend. And I just began a verse-by-verse series on the book of Malachi. And Malachi sort of begins in the deep end of the pool, if you will, with a topic of election. So no real agenda here other than it just so happens to be what I'm preaching at the base. And I'm preaching it to all sorts of people. Believers and unbelievers, Calvinists and Arminians, people that don't know the difference, doesn't matter. And hopefully we can approach this difficult topic 
with clarity and with charity, as it is not always the easiest topic to consider. But I think we will come to find in our text that there is a real practical reason for this doctrine, which I hope will become evident as we go along. Verse 1 begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now, Malachi, which is the Hebrew name for messenger of the Lord, lived approximately 100 years after the people had returned to Israel, after the decree of Cyrus in 538 BC that essentially ended the Babylonian captivity of Israel. In that time, the temple had been rebuilt under the uh, prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah led by the efforts of Ezra, and the walls of Jerusalem had been restored under the leadership of Nehemiah. And thankfully, the people no longer practiced the blatant idolatry that had exiled them from the land of Israel in the first place. But as they returned to the land, their faith over time had become something of a dead orthodoxy, later amplified in Phariseeism, which is to say that there was this outward obedience without inward heart change. This resulted in a growing discouragement, a growing skepticism as people questioned God's favor upon them. And so God, through the prophet Malachi, brings them a word. He brings them an oracle, an authoritative, wise expression, literally translated as burden. God has a burden to remind them of his continued faithfulness. Now, God has not taken this word he delivers through the prophet Malachi lightly. It's heavy. It's a burden. But it's also a word of comfort. It is a message to Israel and not against Israel. And that message begins with a word regarding God's election. We see in verses 2 and 3 that God's election of his chosen people demonstrates his love. God's election of his chosen people demonstrates his love. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this love was not preconditioned upon anything that God found commendable in his people. No, they were not better than the people around them. In fact, he says of his people in Ezekiel 16.6 that he found them wallowing in their own blood, meaning they were newly born when he set his favor upon them. They hadn't even done anything good or bad. He set his affection on them as an adopted parent would finding a discarded child. What, what a profound truth and divine comfort. But apparently his people are not convinced of that love. But you say, how have you loved us? People ask, how have you loved us, God? As if somehow God had not proved his love. You see, things were not working out for Israel the way that they had wanted them to at that time. Skepticism reigned. Outwardly, they went through the motions in their worship of God, but at times, their hearts were far from Him. Perhaps they had a head knowledge of God's love, but not necessarily a heart knowledge. They had an idea, but 
not an experience. And as a child doubts the tough love of a parent who has to discipline disobedience, so too does Israel doubt the love of God. And I want you to notice that God's answer to their doubt has not been predicated on their performance, but on His election of them as His people over and against other people whom He did not elect. He says to them, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. I laid waste his hill country, and I left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. So God grounds his love for Israel by demonstrating how much favor he has shown them over and against their close relative. Jacob, later named Israel, had been chosen to be the line of God's people, not the older brother Esau, the father of the Edomites who had forsaken his birthright. Now, Esau's forsaking in and of itself might be justification enough for God to forsake Esau's line. But Esau and his descendants, the Edomites, continued throughout their history to provoke God's anger, as evidenced throughout Scripture. When Israel came into the land of Canaan after having come out of slavery in Egypt, the Edomites would not let them pass through, instead making them go all the way around through the eastern desert in Numbers 20. When Babylon later invaded Israel, carting them off into slavery, Edom acted treacherously against Israel by cheering the Babylonian invasion in Psalm 137. Throughout Edom's history, they repeatedly raised their hands against Israel, God's chosen, with God condemning their actions, both in the prophetic books of Amos and Obadiah. In fact, the entire book of Obadiah is dedicated to the judgment that God would bring upon Edom and has brought by Malachi's day. But this hate that God has for Esau could have easily been applied to Israel for their bad behavior as demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. God's love and favor is a choice God makes. It's not merited. Now, we might look at that word hate and ask, well, how can a loving God hate anyone? God did not hate them personally but providentially. In other words, in God's providence, He divinely elected to show favor to one and not the other. Israel had been given the covenant, not Edom. God entrusted to Israel the scriptures, temple worship, the priesthood, the prophets, and ultimately the line leading to the Messiah, Jesus. So in their discouragement, God reminds Israel of His favor. Now, those who make a sharp distinction between Old and New Testaments, between a God of wrath and a God of love, might easily dismiss this passage passage as something altogether foreign, as something meant only for Israelite people and not God's people as a whole. But that would be a misreading, for both this verse and this concept of divine election finds continued mention in the New Testament particularly in the book of Romans. Romans 9, in fact, sheds further light on this idea of divine election. Verse 11 of Romans 9 says, Though they, referring to Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, 
not because of works, but because of him who calls. She, referring to their mother Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, and Paul here quotes this verse in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The verse goes on to say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and he's talking about God's divine favor, salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Early in my Christian walk, I would say, it's not fair. It's not fair that God would elect some to salvation and not others. I believed in the Bible. I'm looking at this idea. I've got to be able to explain it away somehow. I hated this idea until I realized that if I really wanted fairness, it would be fair for God to condemn all, for all have sinned. I don't think we truly understand or or appreciate the heinousness of sin if we think God to be unfair in election. I think we paper over sin. I think we, we minimize it. None of us deserve this free gift of salvation. Now, we may not be as bad as we can be. We may not be a, a Hitler or a Stalin or even our, perhaps our more blatantly sinful neighbor, but we are corrupt in our nature. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? How am I in my desperately sick heart trying to understand the God of the universe? It's only by His strength. How can we, in fact, talk about our wills being free when Romans 6 repeatedly says that outside of Christ's intervention, we are slaves to sin? Slavery is not freedom. My will outside of Christ, before Christ saved me, was bound to sin. Therefore, I don't want fairness. I want mercy. I want my heart of stone to be transformed, not left to my own will, which would always choose wrongly, but to God's will, into a heart of flesh. And God is the initiator of that change. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I get it. This is not an easy teaching. I wrestled with this for years. This doctrine of divine election, in fact, has been a dividing line throughout the history of the church. In the fourth century, Augustine affirmed election. Pelagius denied election and was ultimately deemed a heretic. In the 16th century, John Calvin affirmed election. Jacob Arminius, for all practical purposes, denied or at least changed the condition of election, meaning he said that God, he believed, elects people based on God's foreknowledge of those who would eventually choose to put their faith in Christ. In other words, he believed, in essence, man chooses God 
rather than God choosing man. And the debate still continues today with Christians on both sides of the divide. Did you hear what I said? There are Christians on both sides of the divide, brothers and sisters in Christ, meaning that there should be charity as we try to wrestle with and discuss and clarify these things hard to comprehend. So what is election? Well, put simply, election is God choosing to save some and not others, which goes back to the main idea of our text today. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or any obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom He selected. Now, several verses point to this divine choice. I'll just give a few. One being John 6.44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Meaning that God is the initiator of salvation. In Matthew 11.27, Jesus says, No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Meaning that God reveals himself in salvation. You and I didn't happen upon God on our own. He revealed Himself to us. So what seemed like a, a choice on our part was God electing to turn our hearts towards Him. Or consider Matthew twenty-two fourteen: for many are called, but few are chosen, meaning that God chooses or elects you to salvation. Without God's intervention, we would be lost. For Romans 3.11 says that no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. We weren't looking for Him. He sought us. Now, for those of you who already affirm this doctrine, you might be prone to affirm it in the wrong way. What I mean is, is that election is never purely an abstract concept. It's not simply something you add to your knowledge base of systematic theology as if now you know something that others do not. No, no. Doctrine is always meant to be applied. Otherwise, you have a dead orthodoxy, not unlike the dead orthodoxy Israel experienced at this very time. Which begs the question, why does God reveal this doctrine to us. It, I mean, it must be for our edification. And particularly, why does God reveal this doctrine in this passage in Malachi? And hear me when I say this. It is for His people's encouragement. God's divine election is for His people's encouragement. Remember, they're discouraged. They're going through the motions. They're questioning God's favor, asking, how have you loved us? What does God say to them? Particularly, I've loved you particularly with the favor of a father. Now, perhaps there was a time in your life when you were going through great difficulty. Maybe you just weren't feeling it, as they say. And perhaps it was because your, your, your behavior was out of step with the values that your parents taught you. But I want you to imagine that if your dad said to you, hey, it's going to be okay. I love you. You're my son. You're my daughter. 
In other words, his love was not conditioned upon circumstance. It wasn't even conditioned upon your behavior, and it certainly wasn't conditioned upon your response. His love was and is hopefully conditioned upon his role as a father. I have a friend who was unofficially adopted by his neighbors as a teenager, and no matter how out of step my friend was with their Christian values, no matter how difficult it became for my friend in his biological home, he always had a place in his unofficially adopted family, in fact, spending most of his senior year of high school sleeping on their floor. And this act of kindness ultimately led to my friend's salvation as he saw godly fatherhood and God's love displayed. I think that's in essence what we see here. In so many words, God declares to them, I've shown you favor like I have with no other. I've chosen, I've adopted you to be my child, not because you're choice, but because I'm merciful. And through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that favor has been extended to you. In fact, it is extended to all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Do you want to know if you are elect or not? Call out to him. Ask for and receive forgiveness. Because if you're not elect, you're not going to call out. You're going to listen to this and you're going to justify yourself in some form or fashion. God does not turn anyone away. There are not people pounding upon the door of heaven whom God will not allow in. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, as we see in Acts 2.21. And so in verses 2 and 3, we see that God's election of His chosen people demonstrates His love. And then we see in verses 4 and 5 that God's judgment for the wicked inspires His people's praise. God's judgment for the wicked inspires His people's praise. The verse goes on to say, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. I want you to notice the futility regarding the efforts of the wicked, in particular Edom here. It doesn't matter how much effort they give, it's all going to come to naught. This verse exemplifies the idea in Psalm 92.7 that, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. As God declares in Exodus 34.7, He will by no means clear the guilty. The wicked cannot work their will forever. They can say, they'll rebuild, they'll do this or that, but God has determined what they can and cannot do. Again, what an encouragement, because you might read the news or you might see wickedness being propagated in schools or in laws or just in the world in general, and you might wonder, what is going on? Is this just the way it's going to be? You're not the first person to have experienced that. Though the wicked flourish, they are doomed to destruction. This too will pass. Evil does not win. It does not have the upper hand, even if it appears so. God can and God will thwart wickedness in His time and in His way. 
They can say, yeah, we're going to do this or that, but God ultimately determines what they can and cannot do. Now, ultimately, this prophecy was fulfilled, and the Edomites were largely driven from their land by Arab tribes around 400 B.C., later settling in the region of Edomia, which was an impregnable, rocky, fortress-like region that should have been easily defensible. But nothing can protect a people once God has set His heart against them. But even that was not the end of their story. You see, the Edomites became the Edomians. The Romans later installed an Edomian on the throne of Israel. You know him as Herod the Great, an Edomian who continued to exemplify wickedness, particularly in his assault and slaughter of the children of Bethlehem in his attempt to murder the Messiah, Jesus. But God, you promised in Malachi that though they build, you would tear down. Why does Edom still prosper? They might ask. And though God is long-suffering, He will not continue to forever endure the plans of the wicked. For a few hundred years, Edom continued, even sitting on the throne of God's servant David, the throne that belonged to David's descendant, Jesus. But God demonstrates His love for His people, Israel. And He demonstrates it in at least a couple of ways. Number one, by ensuring their continued existence. I mean, when was the last time you turned on the news and heard about an Edomite or an Edomian? Their state has been swept away forever. Number two, God demonstrates His love for His people by fulfilling His promise in giving the Messiah. The Edomians did not sit on David's throne forever. Jesus Christ, in fact, sits on that throne, ruling and reigning, not just a small state in the Middle East, but in the universe as a whole. His kingdom is not of this world. He has chosen you to be a part of that kingdom even before the foundation of the world. So God comforts His people in calling to mind this special favor He has shown them, saying, your own eyes shall see this, meaning you're going to see God thwart wickedness. That is how you will know He is at work, that He's not left you, that He's not forsaken you. He will judge, and as a result, you will worship. For the verse goes on, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You'll not worship some regional deity with localized powers for a particular land and a particular people at a particular time. The Lord's greatness extends beyond geographic borders. His power knows no bounds of time or place. And we see this going on as the church expands. And this is praiseworthy. This induces worship. This causes all of us to say, Great is the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Herod did not have the last say. His wicked heart and wicked plans to kill Christ in the cradle were thwarted. Neither did Satan have the last say. His wicked heart and his wicked plans to kill Christ on the cross were also thwarted. For Christ has gone before us as the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning that because Christ was raised, all of those of us in Christ, elected from before the foundation of the world, will be raised to new life as well. And that causes us to say, great is the Lord. 
Now, God's electing love is meant to both cultivate and also crush certain qualities in His people. First of all, His electing love cultivates humility, for it was by grace that you've been saved, not of your own works, Ephesians 2.8. Additionally, God's electing love cultivates dependence. For many are the plans and the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand, Proverbs 19.21. And finally, God's electing love cultivates praise, for we anticipate the day when we will stand with the multitudes in heaven declaring, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, Revelation 19.1. But God's electing love should also crush, should also call or, or kill a couple of undesirable qualities in each of us. First, God's electing love crushes presumption. For those unrighteous who are bold, or some translations say presumptuous and willful, they do not tremble when they blaspheme, according to 2 Peter 2.10, meaning we cannot presume that God is going to be merciful forever as we go our own way. We cannot assume we're good because we grew up in church or we sometimes do good things or we're better than other people or we even go to church and believe in God now. Even the demons believe and shudder, according to James 2.19. Now, 2 Peter 1.10 says, we need to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and our election by our reliance on the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Finally, God's electing love crushes pride. After having declared that none seek after God, that all have sinned and fallen short of His glory and yet are justified by His grace as a gift, Paul asks in Romans 3.27, what then becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Election isn't something that makes us smart. It should not even be something that makes us angry. It's meant to encourage us. It's meant to remind us of just how helpless we are without the intervention of Christ on our behalf across the entire spectrum of salvation for your justification, your sanctification, and all the rest. God loved you enough, Christian, not to leave you to your own devices. Just like when I'm discouraged and I look on my wall and I see that ordination certificate, just a piece of paper, and recall all those who prayed for me and affirmed my call, so too can you, believer, look to God's electing love of you, not because you were choice, none of us are, but because He chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. You can look at that and be encouraged. In verses 2 and 3, we see that God's election of His chosen people shows His love. In verses Four and five, we see that God's judgment for the wicked inspires His people's praise. Because of this, you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though we are not choice people, you chose us in Christ. You met us in our helpless estate and you showed great mercy. Cause us to worship and glorify as a result of what you have done. 
as we read the Bible this week, as we go about our daily lives, Lord, we ask that you would deepen our affection for you, that we might not sin against you. Thank you, Lord, for Christ, for what he has done on our behalf. Give you all praise, honor, and glory. Amen.